Tonight we're turning in our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8, two verses, verses 15 and 16 of chapter 8. While I was gone on vacation last week, Pastor Dan began a series on the assurance of faith from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18. And last Sunday evening, he talked about, is it possible for us to have assurance? Is that something we should even attain for or strive for, I should say? And the answer that he gave was a resounding yes, it is something to strive for, it is possible. And tonight the question before us is, if it is possible, then how do we receive that assurance of faith? How is it possible for us to believe and to be confident that we are children of God? And so we're turning to Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, give your attention to the Word of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Just those two verses tonight. May God bless the preaching of His Word. My friends... Those of us who are believers in Christ may struggle with different things. I was reminded of my own particular temptation to struggle this past week when about halfway through our trip, I walked around the passenger side of our rental car and I noticed near the bottom of the door a scratch, really a dent, about this long. And my mind went back immediately to the lady standing behind the counter asking, and would you like to buy the extra insurance. And of course, I said, no, because that's a scam. At that moment, I thought about all the things that could happen. Did I dent the car? Did we get the car dented? When could I have dented the car? And what's going to happen when I return the car and there's a dent in the bottom of the door? And literally from that time forward, the thought kept coming back to me. Middle of the night, wake up. What am I going to do with the rental car? driving to the next place to hike, saying to my wife, I wonder what's going to happen, and she'd fill in for me when we return the rental car. (laughs) And she reminded me, one of the beautiful things that happened on our time away together is she reminded me of things that she loves about me and could also remind me about things where I am weak. And one of the places where I am weak is in trusting the Lord from day to day. I confess to her there's never been a time in my life where I wasn't confident if I died that I'd go to be with the Lord. And I think that's honestly true. I don't say that boastfully. I'm just saying that's true. But if you were to ask me, do I trust the Lord with my rental car or with various things that I think about from moment to moment, I would say on principle, yes, but they far more often bother my heart. I struggle to trust the sovereignty, the power, and the goodness of God from moment to moment. But others of us are different. I remember my grandmother, who was 95 years old, going to visit her when she was very near death. She couldn't see very well, she couldn't hear very well, but her mind was sharp about things that had happened many years before. And she wanted to talk about a particular sin that had occurred when she was a child. And she wanted to ask me, Jeff, is it possible that I could go and be with the Lord if I've sinned like that? 
she struggled with that sense of assurance for many, many, many years of her life. Perhaps not about the small things as I do, but about that big question, if I die, will I go to be with the Lord? And tonight, if you struggle with that question, we have come as a pastoral team to ask and answer that question because it's so important for the Christian life. Because there are many Christians who say, you can't know. In fact, it's wrong of you to ever come to the conclusion that you can be confident, you can be assured that if you die, you go to be with the Lord. But we believe, based on the Scriptures, it's not only possible, as you learned last Sunday night, it's also something that is possible because of what God says in His Word. And because of that, we turn to Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. And especially tonight, I want you to look at verse 16 and these few words where it says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. My hope and my prayer, as I have thought about this over the last couple of weeks, is that for some of us who have struggled with that question, can I be sure that I belong to Jesus Christ? Tonight, the Spirit would assure you in your heart that you most certainly do, and you will forever. What I want to say to you from this verse is very simple, and that is the Holy Spirit provides confirming testimony that we are children of God. That's the point. The Spirit provides confirming testimony that we are children of God. And the way I want to explain that to you is beginning with the question, the first thing to ask is, well, what is the evidence? If we are saying it is possible to be assured that we belong to Jesus Christ, what is the evidence that indicates that is true? When we enter into Romans chapter 8, I want you to think in your minds that you're sitting in a courtroom. The question that is being asked in this courtroom is a question that's almost always asked in this courtroom. Whatever courtroom you are in, is there evidence for the thing that is being attempted to be proven? And tonight in this courtroom, the question is whether or not you are a genuine child of God. Are you saved? And to come to the proper answer to this question Evidence is brought before the court, including the testimony of various witnesses. And the primary witness, according to this verse, is the Holy Spirit Himself. The Spirit comes to provide the answer of whether or not you are saved. That's what verse 16 says. It's not auxiliary to the Spirit's work. It's not just sort of at the tail end of what the Spirit does. No, this verse tells us, it really shouts to your heart that may feel very weak, This is what I do as God himself, the Spirit, testifies that we are children of God. And as the Spirit lays out the evidence that we belong to Jesus Christ, that we are genuinely his, in this verse he gives us two reasons that we are asked to examine as to why that is true. The first reason the Spirit brings before us are the promises of the Scriptures. This is the primary way that the Bible says we are assured that we belong to Him. He testifies along with the Scriptures themselves that we are joined to Jesus Christ and we are indeed saved. If you look a few verses uh, earlier in this chapter, in verses 10 and 11, we read one of those promises. It says, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... He who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life 
to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There's one of those precious promises. He will most certainly give you life. And those of you who are dead now become alive. I want you to see what that verse says very carefully. What makes all the difference for us is whether Christ is in us. If Christ is indeed in us, then we can have the same hope for the resurrection as we can be certain that Jesus himself was raised. As certain as that historical fact, so certain it can be that we also will be raised. And the reality of that future total justification before our God, being declared absolutely right before our God, is also true today. We stand before God because of Jesus Christ, absolutely clothed in his righteousness, in spite of the fact that we have many reasons to doubt ourselves. There are many evidences that we could cite tonight why we are not perfect. There is so much work left to do. When you appear before the God of the universe, you appear clothed in Jesus Christ. He looks at you with the same eyes that he views the perfection of his Son. And so the Bible says this precious promise is yours. Not because you're perfect, not because you've done everything right, not because you're growing, because you're acceptable, because there's something inherently in you, but because you are in Jesus Christ. If you are His, then these promises belong to you. Here's another promise from 1 Corinthians, or rather from Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Listen, it says, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through his death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That is a precious promise that he has promised to present you spotless, before Almighty God. Or John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39. Jesus says, All that my Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose none but should raise him up on the last day. This is your promise. God has saved you in Jesus Christ. He will keep you to the end, and Jesus will not lose you. He will hold you securely, tighter and with more confidence than any other promise in the world. In the Bible, God makes promises over and over and over, and those promises belong to you. Listen to one more promise. This is from a couple of chapters later in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. It says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you believe in your hearts that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, if you put your confidence in him, the promise is you will be saved. Not just that you can be saved, but that you will be saved. These are God's promises to those who believe. 
so that it comes to those times of wondering. You you feel perhaps far from God. Maybe it's circumstances in life, maybe your own sin, maybe an illness, maybe a friend who's abandoned you. You feel all alone. And you ask the question, am I really saved? Or am I not saved? Or how can I even be sure? The Bible says, the Holy Spirit testifies that the promises of the Word, the promises I've just read and many others beside, are not just promises issued out there somewhere. These are promises made to God's children. They belong to you. Identify, knit together, the promise with God speaking to you. Take them to heart. They're designed for you so that you would know, so that you can be confident in spite of all the reasons you see why you would not if you believe in your heart. If you've put your faith in Christ, then you can most certainly turn to these promises and say, these promises are mine. They belong to me. In the moments of your doubts, I want you to listen to the Spirit's words in the words of Scripture. Turn there. Listen to them. Meditate on them. These are not promises that change depending on how we feel. These are the promises of Almighty God Himself. The God whom the Bible says does not change, a God who is faithful to the end. How can we know that we are saved in this great court in which evidence is asked and given It is that there are promises made in the Scriptures, promises that the Spirit applies to us. You have the evidence of the promises of God. There's a second source of evidence as well. God's promises are not the only way in which the Spirit testifies that we are indeed saved. They are the primary way, and I want to emphasize that. And when these promises are fulfilled in our hearts and lives, we see changes that result. They are visible changes. Look back in this chapter to verses 3, 4, and 5. There I read, For what the law could not do, in that he was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now listen to this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Let me summarize it a bit like this. Paul is saying these verses tell us there's only one way to be saved, that is through Jesus Christ. He has already told us that, and I've emphasized that in the first line of evidence. We are in Christ. His promises are for us. Nothing else will do. Not the law, not other saviors. Nothing will do what was impossible otherwise God did through Jesus. But Paul didn't stop there. He says those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, who have their hearts changed by God, will have evidence of that change in their lives. They will live like they are changed. There will be places where it is seen. These are people who live like their minds are set on the things of the Spirit, who evidence day after day, if not perfectly, 
at least in places, the fruit of the Spirit. They're loving. They're gentle. They're kind. They're compassionate. They're peace-loving. They're generous. They're meek. They're humble. To put it simply, they are godly. This is what John Calvin called the duplex application of the grace of God. In the saving of humanity and then in the transformation of those whom he saves. The promises speak to that saving grace. What I'm talking about here is the evidence of that transforming grace. Real evidence. What I have found often is the best way to look for this evidence is not by asking your own heart. Maybe you do sometimes. Maybe the conversation goes something like this. If I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, why to continue to struggle with my lust, my greed, my loose tongue, my covetous nature? Why do I so easily become angry or disappointed or frustrated? Why am I not more disciplined? Why am, am, am I not more kind? Why am I not more loving? You can give all the reasons why I am not more of something. But ask people who know you. Do they see evidence of the Spirit's work in your life? You might always long to be more kind. Do the people around you see times when you are kind, when you are loving, when you're gracious, when you encourage, when you're self-controlled, when you're temperate, when you seek to love others above yourselves? It's not as though this is a promise of perfection. But what it is, is a way for us to identify the way in which the Spirit is at work and the promises are being realized in our lives. You can be very practical about this. Ask a best friend. Ask your parent. Ask your child. Ask your spouse. Do you see evidence of the Spirit's work in me? Do you see places in which those things that the Spirit longs for are true in my heart and in my life? There may be people who listen to this, and I'll return to this later, for whom that is not true. It is possible, and I don't mean to give false assurance, it is possible if we do not put our faith in Jesus Christ that there would be no evidence of these things in our lives. What I'm saying tonight is not designed to give you false assurance. It is to say the faith that is called, that is called for in the Scriptures is not a faith that is perfect. It is a faith that gives itself entirely to Christ. And by giving ourselves entirely to Christ, resting and trusting and relying upon Him, what God has promised in the Scriptures is in fact ours. We belong to Him, He belongs to us, and we are in Him. And that evidence of a life that is gradually being changed starts and stops perhaps, not always consistent, but there is evidence indeed And these are the two evidences, the two lines of evidence that are noted in this passage. The first and most important is what God says about those He has laid claim to. He has given them promises. I want you to hear those promises tonight. Promises that stand not because of your faithfulness, but because of His. And secondly, God's salvation, that transforming power will be shown in us. Who we are, children of God, the fruit of God's work in us, will be shown 
by the way that we live. But I want to return with you tonight for just a moment to that court. As I've said, the Holy Spirit here is testifying in that court, both by the promises of God and those promises worked into our hearts that we are children of God. But I did not really answer a prior question when I began, and that is, who needs to be convinced? When it says in verse 16, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, that can be understood in two ways, and I want to give them both to you. One is that he testifies alongside of us. So we have our own testimony and he adds to it. In a sense, we are present before God. We give the testimony of our lives to God, our judge, and the Spirit adds testimony along with it. That's not, I think, what Paul intends, and I'll give you reasons why. Rather, the testimony that is being spoke of in verse 16 is not testimony alongside of, It's testimony, to use a better preposition, it's testimony to the spirit of those who are believers. It is meant that the spirit also speaks, that he also says, that his testimony is designed to speak to our hearts about what is true. This is a position taken by many of our Reformed fathers, by Calvin and Luther, for example, The testimony is not designed toward God. The testimony is designed toward us. That we would be assured that these things are true. It is no doubt that Romans 8 verse 16, the verse that I am explaining to you tonight, says that the Spirit testifies that we are children of God. What I want you to hear tonight is, In addition, that he testifies is that he desires to testify to your heart that you are a child of God. He wants to speak to your doubts, to your fears, to your hesitancies. He wants to make the promises of God known to you. He wants you to connect your heart and your life to the fulfillment of those promises being worked in you. It is very true. That's precisely how the Spirit accomplishes the promise that is laid in this verse. It is not said exactly how. In other words, there is mystery in what the Spirit does. That should not surprise us. Jesus describes the Spirit's work in John 3.8 as something like the blowing of the wind. This is not a mechanical sort of work. It is a divine and somewhat mysterious work, how the Spirit testifies to our heart. In other words, when you read a promise of the Scripture, let me give you just a very simple promise. One that I've spoken to myself many, many times, a promise that I learned as a very, very young man, and I praise the Lord that my parents taught me this simple truth, Jesus loves me, This I know. When I hear that promise, how do I know that that biblical promise is true for me? It's not just a promise spoken into air. How do I know it belongs to me? That's the Spirit's work. To testify to you that Jesus not only loves, He loves you. And one of the things that I want you to hear very clearly 
is that we are called to be thankful for the Spirit's work and to also ask Him to be busy in our hearts. It's not wrong to ask Him. Assure me, Spirit of God, that I am a child of God and you are at work in me. It's not wrong to ask that. It is not wrong for Him to testify to your heart. Just a few minutes ago, I mentioned that the primary evidence the Spirit gives that we are children of God are these promises. If you understand this is true, then perhaps what I would encourage you to do when you struggle with the assurance of your faith is turn to those promises. Maybe even tonight as I'm preaching this sermon to you, you'll hear these promises being said to you again. Or maybe later on tonight when you're reading your Bible under your bedroom lamp, or maybe tomorrow morning when you're sitting at your kitchen table reading these promises, would you start by asking the Spirit to assure you that these promises are meant for you? Not only are they found in the pages of Scripture, the application is meant for you. They're your promises. That Jesus hung in the cross for your sins. That He died in your place. That you indeed are a child of God. There are two things that I want to say to you tonight about this assurance that I've already sort of noted but I want to make explicit to you. What I've said to you tonight does not mean that we are perfect or that we would expect to be perfect or we could not be assured until we are perfect. There may be an objection that is formed something like this. I know what you're saying, pastor, is true for other people. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if that's what you've been thinking. (laughs) These promises are true for other people, but you don't know who I am or what I've done. There are things which I've done in my life that are so awful, so hidden, so horrible, that it is sure God could never truly love someone like me. I'm going to be careful how I answer an objection like this. I want you to listen carefully. Because if you feel like you have done something which causes you to be far from God, The last thing I want to do is deny the presence of sin. The nature of sin is it drives a wedge between us and God. And maybe the sense that you are far from God is precisely because you are far from God. And for that sin, what I would say to you is a very simple thing, and that is your call to repent. You two are to assume the attitude of David in Psalm 51 verse 7 that says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. But that's just the beginning. That's not all. Some of us get stuck there. And we think of our sin and we return to repentance over and over and over again. And we ought to repent continually of our sin. But we never move beyond the repentance. Because 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is not in the perfection of our confession that we are made acceptable to God. It is in our confession we recognize the need for forgiveness. We see the need for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, but the cleansing blood of Christ 
is what removes all guilt and shame. And if you are one of those people who has a hard heart and has never repented to the Lord, let me be the first tonight to encourage you to do that. Lay before Him those things that burden your heart because you've not confessed them. You've not repented of them. You've not turned away. Make this the night in which that is true. But if you are one of those dear saints who struggles not with confession, but with the move from confession to 1 John 1 verse 9, let me encourage you, maybe push you along a little bit, that maybe the failure to move from confession to trust in the cleansing power of Jesus Christ is more than just uncertainty. And I want to say this very carefully, there could be pride involved. The pride that says, I must continue to clean myself up before God would truly accept me. No, my friends, you are a humble, you are a sinner who cannot expect anything from God, save what God gives graciously. Because that is true, run to our Savior. There's no reason to hold back. He's not waiting for you to clean yourself up before you're acceptable to Him. You'll never be acceptable if that's what you're waiting for. Run to Jesus, and He will cleanse you. And in that cleansing, you become acceptable to our God. Let me say it differently. In Jesus Christ, there's no longer anything that needs to be forgiven. Because the forgiveness that our God grants in Jesus is comprehensive. It doesn't mean there are consequences to sin. We might continue to suffer with those. Those are even ways in which God continues to transform us. But the guilt, the shame, the dread of the consequence eternally is taken away by our God. Let me say it one other way, perhaps a bit more strongly, that once you repent of your sin, you have no right to wallow in it. And I mean that two ways. One way to wallow in our sin is to to return to it over and over. And I'd call you to repent of that. But the other is to think and dwell on it. And I speak this to my own heart as much to any of you tonight. It is not godly to set our heart on sin and our sense of guilt and shame over it. What is godly is to turn in our guilt and shame to the beautiful, wonderful, cleansing grace of Jesus Christ. You see, my friends, the Spirit's work in convincing us that we're children of God does not in this life totally take away our sinful hearts. There's not automatic perfection. We will continue to struggle with sin. There will even be times where we will turn back to our sin and we will not feel in that moment as though we are saved. But the difference between those who are saved and can be assured of that salvation and those who are not lies in the saved running to Jesus Christ in repentance. That is the fundamental difference. We grow in our distaste for sin. And we grow in our desire to please our Savior. Those who are not saved, there's one simple way to determine if that's true. You look at your sin as desirable. You love it. You can't imagine it being distasteful. This is a difference that is marked over and over in the Scriptures. Those who repent of their sin are welcomed into the fellowship of God Himself. 
those who do not are not. You see, my friends, it is clear that God is not finished with us yet. And He will not be finished with us until the time that Christ comes again. So just like all other parts of life, whether it's your work ethic, your ability to parent, your ability to spend your money the way that you ought to, your ability to control your tongue, all those areas in which you are seeking God's sanctifying work, so also the assurance that we sense of our salvation will be imperfect until the day that Christ returns. But tonight, the word that I give to you is this. The Holy Spirit has come to testify to your heart that you are a child of God. That is true because of the promises of God and the way those promises are evidenced in our lives. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. That is also a promise given to you. God has sent His Spirit to give us a certainty of our faith. He has given us His Spirit so many years ago at Pentecost to assure us that we are children of God. So lift up your heads tonight, my friends. Do not be dejected. Do not mourn or be sorrowful. Return once again to the uncertainty that is natural in the human heart. Those who are sinners, instead turn your heart to Jesus Christ and the Spirit that He has sent into our hearts. For the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, you know how each one of us needs to hear this truth. Some of us are struggling with sins that are not in conformity with the will of our God. We may be believers in Jesus Christ, and yet those sins cause us to doubt over and over. Lord, break the way in which that pattern of sin works in our life that we would have greater certainty. Others of us have been taught over time that it's not godly to even want that kind of certainty. That's reserved only for super saints. Well, Lord, your word says here in Romans 8, verse 16, that you have given the Spirit to testify in our hearts that we are children of God. As certainly as we've been given the Spirit, He has done His work and will do His work of assuring us that we belong to You. And some of us simply are walking down a hard road in which there are many places in our lives in which we have reason to doubt. Maybe it's a relationship that has gone south. Maybe it is our financial position. Maybe it's a struggle in some other area of life. Lord, I sincerely ask You, we ask You together, that one of the things You will do as a result of this sermon, of this Word being explained, is that You will work greater assurance in the hearts of those who hear this message, that instead of doubting and fearing, You would replace by the perfect love of Jesus Christ that fear with confidence and therefore a life of joy. Lord, You're able to do this. You spoke the world into existence out of nothing. You redeemed us by the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. And You can keep this promise as well. Lord, we pray that You would do it. For we come to You in Jesus' name. Amen.